you guys are stuck with me again in 2020 for another week. <laughs> I'm always glad to, to step in and do this. It's this, uh, this love-hate relationship with, with preaching. I love it because of how good the deep personal study is for myself and how rich it is, and I get to bring the gospel, but it's also so convicting, and I feel like the biggest hypocrite up here, and I need to be preaching to myself. So I love it, and I hate it, and I'm always glad to do it. Today, uh, we are in John 4. You can go ahead and turn there. We got a, a pretty big chunk to read uh, today. And, and to help keep our eyes on the end goal of what this sermon series is about, the, the title of the sermon series is Believe. So to help us focus, I'm going to read John 20, 31 first. You can just listen. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's what we want. That's what I want. I want to have life in his name, and we get that by believing in him, that he is the Messiah. So that's our goal. So when we read this today, John 4, let's keep our eyes on the prize. What does John want us to believe today? So keep that in mind as we read. We're going to read John 4, uh, verses 1 through 30 at the very least here. And I'll be reading from ESV. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or about noon, depending on which calendar you use. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a, water, or a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and, for, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, 
I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away, went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Okay, so what does John want us to believe based on this story? Why does he include this story? Of all the stories that he could include, he includes this one. And I think he, he, uh, he puts these two stories next to each other, John 3 and John 4, on purpose. I'm not sure if they come chronologically or not, but he does this on purpose. And John 3, if you remember, this is the last time we were in John, was two weeks ago. We talked about Nicodemus, the Pharisee, right? And if you compare and contrast Nicodemus and this woman, we can see that, you know, Nicodemus was uh, religious elite. Uh, he was Jewish. He was upper class. He comes from a high, a high moral upstanding in his community. The woman at the well comes as a religious outcast. She's a Samaritan, first of all, and the Samaritans and the Jews do not get along at all. I wouldn't say that they're at war, but they have enacted acts of violence against each other's temple. They do, they do not associate with each other. The Jews com consider the Samaritans to be half-breeds. So when the northern kingdom was in exile, they come back, um, they enter marry with the people that were there at the land, they take on some of their customs, and the Jews consider them to be not really Jews anymore. So she's a religious outcast as a Samaritan. She's definitely lower class. She would have been the poorest of the lower class. So this is a time and place when your economic standing depended so much on the patriarch of the family. If you had, you, you had to have a, a husband or a father in the family for economic well-being. And she's been through at least five either divorces or marriages that have failed, and she now has no husband. So she would have been the poorest of the poor, and she is morally compromised by any measure. At least five marriages was not acceptable even among Samaritan culture, but really she's probably a prostitute um, with the way, so some of the commentaries I looked at, probably the way that she talks to Jesus is very suggestive. The, the fact that she comes to the well at noon, she would have known that travelers would have been coming through at that time. So she's a religious outcast, a social outcast, and morally an outcast. Furthermore, she is a woman, where Nicodemus is a man, and this is unfortunately a time and place in human history where respect and dignity for women were at probably an all-time low, arguably in all of human history. This is not a great time to be a woman. In fact, in this social situation, Jesus would have been expected to kind of back off and keep a 20-foot distance between her, or between himself and the woman. Rabbis were not even supposed to talk to their own wives in public. That's kind of the scene here. So this is, um, so despite all that, despite these differences between Nicodemus 
and this woman, Jesus offers this undeserving woman living water as a gift, right? It's a surprise. It's not, it's not earned. Um, it's a surprise, and the text is full of surprises. You see when the disciples come back, they're shocked, right? Why is he talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman, at the well in the middle of the day? This text is full of surprises, but really the biggest surprise here is that we've kind of been conditioned to know that, you know, like organized religion and the world tells us that an experience with God, closeness with God is for the righteous, right? For those who pray in their private prayer cells, those who deny themselves, those who cry out for God, those who pursue extra biblical reading, the ones really that look like Nicodemus. That's what kind of what organized religion tells us. But with this woman, there is no crying out. There is no moral upstanding. She was not purifying her heart. She simply went to the well to get water like she did every day, and Jesus offers her living water. This is grace, right? When we get what we don't deserve, this is grace. Christianity is grace. If I had to pick one word to sum up Christianity, it would be grace. When we get what we don't deserve, it's a, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, you can have him. You can have Jesus. It's a matter of grace. It's always a surprise. And so that's ultimately what John wants us to believe here, first of all, is that salvation is not by works. You know, Paul would write a lot about this later on in his letters. But the point is, we don't have a push-button God. He's not a, he's not a tamed lion. Morgan talked about this on the podcast uh, earlier last week with Matt when they were going through John 2, saying there's not a certain set of actions that you can do that you, you get something from God. You can't pray a certain way, then God has to respond that way. Like we, we, it's hard to get out of that mindset, but that's not how it works. It's always a matter of grace. So the living water is a gift. You can't work hard enough to get it. You can't do enough good things to earn it. The living water is a gift. That's the first thing John wants us to believe. Secondly, the living water is for the thirsty. As I take a drink, didn't plan it that way, I promise. The living water is for those who are truly thirsty. You'll notice as we go through the book of John, Jesus almost always exclusively works with or associates his ministry with those who are the lowly, the, the crippled, the diseased, the outcast, the desperate. You'll see that in the book of John. In other words, those who recognize that they are thirsty. Those are who he prefers to work with. Because if you can't see that you have a thirst that is not quenched by attaining things, accomplishing things, or having the right relationships, then you'll never see your need for the living water. That's why Jesus, I think, tells his disciples in Matthew 19, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because you see, when things, when things are going well for you, when you're successful, you, know, you have people all around you, you um, you're getting things done on your own, you're not dependent on other people, there's no need for God in those situations a lot of times. It's only when we're broken when we're alone, when we're emptied of ourselves, can we acknowledge that we're thirsty. So in the sense of Jesus working through those who are the most desperate, this passage is no different. Here is a woman who is dying of spiritual thirst. She's desperate for something. And how does Jesus set up this interaction? What does he do? We, you notice 
First of all, he gets her alone. Right? He gets her alone at the well. He, he sent off his disciples to go get food, which we find out later he didn't really need. And so in sending off those disciples, he would have been sending off his tool for drawing water. So the, the way that wells worked in the Middle East at this time was not like the picturesque uh, wells that we see in the countryside with a bucket dangling on a rope. You were expected to travel with your own leather bucket that kind of folded up nicely so it'd be easy to travel with. So Jesus knows in that sending off his disciples to go get food that he's sending off his only way to get water, setting up this interaction on purpose. So I think the plan of salvation for the Samaritans had always been through this woman, right? At least this whole town, a lot of these people in this town believe. And so think about this. Jesus, his plan for salvation was through this Samaritan woman. And this interaction would never happen if there was 20 or 30 other women at the well. So if, if this woman had lived morally and she had been around women at the well like she normally, or like she was supposed to, this conversation would have never happened. Salvation to the Samaritans wouldn't have happened, at least not in this way. So he uses her broken life to bring salvation to many. I think that's remarkable. And so then what does he do next? He invites her to go back, or to go and bring back whatever it is she's been using to try to quench her thirst. In her case, it's relationships or men. And in doing so, he compares her broken cisterns, to borrow language from Jeremiah 2, these broken cisterns, and compares it to his living water. And there really is no comparison. And she, she knows it, and she tries to avoid it. She tries to change the subject. Now, do you guys know what cisterns are? It's not, a, it's not something that we're really familiar with. So you have, uh, I, I guess, on the, on the scale of preferable water sources, you have fresh spring water. Right? If you have that, that's great not really happening in the Middle East a whole lot. If you don't have that, you have a well. And you mentioned like Jacob's well is a very deep well because the water is so hard to get to in a lot of these places. You have to go really deep. And if you can't do that, if you don't have the tools to do that, you would dig a cistern, which is really a hole in the ground. It's a hole in the limestone that you would dig and it would, uh, most of the time it would crack, it would break, it might last a few months, it might last a couple years, but inevitably it would break it would crack, and even when it worked, it was collecting dirty groundwater. So it wasn't great water to drink from. But that's how cisterns worked, and, and they would break, and you'd have to dig another one, and then another one, and another one, and another one. And that's what God in Jeremiah 2 is comparing his people to. He says in Jeremiah 2, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. So I want you to consider this. Maybe God is letting you right now walk through hardship, whatever that is, failing health, financial strain, relationship troubles, so that he can get you alone. So that he can get you to see that you are thirsty for the living water, that the cisterns aren't working. It's when he can get you alone is when he can talk to you personally, intimately, quietly, and that's when healing truly happens. So I ask you, what cisterns are you digging currently to try to quench your thirst right now? What are the things you're chasing that Jesus says, go get that, bring it back to the well, and let's see how you're really doing? Is it career, family, money, love, recognition? Jesus is telling us that we will never understand the nature of living water he offers, unless we first understand how we've been seeking it in our own life 
from unhealthy places. He has to get her to see that first before he can offer anything else. So the point here is that the living water is for the thirsty. Now, point three, the good news for those who are thirsty, the living water is completely satisfying. John wants us to see that clearly. Now, there are a lot of unsatisfying water sources out there, right? We often look outside of ourselves to quench our thirst. I mentioned some of these things like career, relationships, love, prosperity, education, family, even social causes. They're all good things. But when we use those things to quench a thirst that only comes from God, those things can uh, let us down. When those things fail or those things go away or those things are taken away from us, we die of thirst when those things are gone. We can die of thirst. We don't know, we don't know what it's like to truly be thirsty, to die of thirst, right? We don't know what it's like. As some people describe like your, your internal organs feel like they're on fire. Your tongue swells up. It sticks to the roof of your mouth. You know, has anybody here died of thirst? No. Has anybody ever here been close to dying of thirst? Probably not, right? So we don't have really a whole lot of experience with this unless, uh, of course, if you have young kids or had young kids at a certain age and you, you tuck them in at night, you give them a kiss, and you go to close the door, and Dad, I'm so thirsty, I need a drink. I can't sleep, I don't have a drink. <laughs> that might be the most experience that we have with somebody who's dying of thirst, right? So it's, it's not something that we're really familiar with, but it is a real problem for this woman. It is a real problem for the people in this day, in this location. And we see in this story um, that there's such a, it's such, thirst is such a strong motivator that even she says she's interested in this magical water, right? She, Jesus offers living water, and all she hears is magical water, right? This, this Bobby Boucher water boy water, right, from the Alaskan glacier that is always cold. Sorry for water boy reference. She wa- she's like, yeah, give me that magical water. I'll take that. If I don't have to come back to this well every day, sure, sign me up for that. But no, Jesus hears the cry of this woman's heart, and he says, I have something for you that is greater, that is more important than your physical thirst. It's a spring of water for your very soul. He's saying, I've got something for you that is as basic and necessary to you spiritually as water is to you physically, and without it you are absolutely lost. He's talking about eternal life that brings a deep, soul satisfaction, a contentment in life that starts now. It doesn't, it's not finished now, but it starts now. And it doesn't depend on what's happening outside of us. But because Jesus says this spring comes from within us. Right? There's, there's nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy the thirst that is deep down inside you. For some of us, that takes longer to realize than others. You look at the life of Solomon, King Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He denied himself no water source. (laughs) Power, luxury, women, beauty, he tried it all. In his book of Ecclesiastes, he basically says, you know what, if you chase these things, it's like chasing after the wind. You'd be better off not being born ever. (laughs) You'd be better off not being born at all than to chase these things says it's so frustrating that you want to die. That's what he says about chasing these water sources. So you contrast that to what Jesus is telling her here. He says, I can give you a spiritual drink that no matter what happens, 
to you, no matter what happens around you, my joy will bubble through. And you know what the best thing about this promise is? Is you don't have to create new thirst for him. You don't have to dig down and muster up new strength to drink this living water. All he's asking her to do here is to transfer her thirst to him. Stop thirsting after these false idols that can never quench your thirst and thirst after me. He says, take your existing desires and transfer them to me. I've, I've created you with good longings in your heart, but I've also created you to worship me, he says. Stop going to unhealthy places to have your good longings met. It doesn't work. And what does she do? She runs and leaves her jar. Right? John gives us this little detail. I don't think there's anything spiritual or symbolic about it. He's just telling it how it happened. She runs and she leaves her jar. The original purpose, she came to the well, she doesn't care about it anymore. She leaves her jar behind. She is happy, right? She's happy that Jesus told her everything that she has ever done. And the chains of her false masters have been broken. She doesn't care what they think. She doesn't care what the town thinks. She doesn't care what her past husbands think anymore. She loves them enough to tell them, come, see, could this be the Messiah who's told me everything I've ever done? She came to the well broken, thirsty, and ashamed, but after her interaction with Jesus, she leaves restored, fully satisfied, and gladly takes the role as the world's first evangelist. (laughs) So the living water is a gift. It's for the thirsty. It's completely satisfying. The fourth point that that John wants us to see here is Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is our new temple. John wants us to see this very clearly. And to paraphrase the, the, the heart of this passage once more, starting around, you know, verse 16, where um, Jesus says, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. He says, you said correctly, you've had five. Here's what's going on. The, the woman basically says back, okay, okay, I see that you are a prophet. In that case, what's your ruling on this great debate? <laughs> we worship on this mountain, Jerusalem. The Jews worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? This was a great debate of their time. This is really where the Samaritans and the Jews butt heads. Is, you know, Jacob, Jacob built this well. He was here. He spent more time here than in Jerusalem. So why are, why are you right and we're not? And Jesus says, it's irrelevant. The time is coming when there will be no need for a physical temple in order to have access to God. God seeks worshipers right now who worship in spirit and truth. And the woman, I think, being a little bit overwhelmed with this, really, this theological truth bomb. I mean, it's a lot to take in. Feeling a little overwhelmed, she, she shows a little bit of her faith, surprisingly, compared to this in Nicodemus. She says, I believe there is a Messiah coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything, right? So she's thought about this before. You know, she has a pretty decent amount of faith to say, you know, I don't understand everything you're saying, but there's a Messiah coming. He'll set everything straight. And you can almost hear the smile on Jesus' face. He says, I, the one speaking to you, I am, or I am he, right? It's this great I am statement. He invokes the proper name for God. Uh, so the women, I know they just finished up their Bible study last fall when they went through the I am statements in John. 
So for some of you, this is still fresh in your mind. So John wants to make it crystal clear to us that Jesus is the new and better temple. He makes several references uh, to this throughout his book of John. Um, the most recent one we looked at was in chapter 2. If you remember, he said, tear this temple down and in three days I will rebuild it. He's talking about his own resurrection, not the physical temple in Jerusalem. And as on the podcast that Morgan and Matt did, uh, Morgan had pointed out how this was the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle. This is the temple coming in to being. This is Jesus fulfilling and becoming the temple for us. So how, how is this possible? How does Jesus become the new temple? Well, I hope that the answer is um, obvious to most of us. It's through his death and his resurrection. That's how he becomes our temple. He's talk, in this passage, he talks about the hour is coming. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. But there are some details that are given to us through the, uh, through the Gospels, talking about his death on the cross, that I think that are really relevant to what we're talking about here in John 4. Now, let me make my, my case here. So, so Jesus on the cross, is, it's a horrible death, right? It's, it's not, it wasn't an uncommon thing, but it was not, not any less horrible. And he went through, I'm sure, excruciating pain. But there's nothing recorded for us that talks about anything noteworthy in his, in his crying out, in his pain. Not that it wasn't there. It's just that it was pretty much probably par for the course of how you would um, act, behave through a crucifixion. It's not until the sky goes dark, signifying the Father has turned his back on Jesus. He cannot look on sin. That's when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's the spiritual thirst, it's the spiritual separation from God that makes Jesus cry out. And I think that is astonishing. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is invoking Psalm 22. He's not quoting the entire Psalm. He wouldn't be physically able to, and that was not how you had to do it anyway um, in those days. He's, he invokes Psalm 22, and it's interesting in Psalm 22, among other things, this is a prophecy about Jesus and the crucifixion. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this to you in verse 14. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. Now, Jesus didn't die of thirst. He probably would have if he had been left there. He, that's not the cause of his death. So what he's talking about here is what he's going through spiritually in his separation from God, his Father, this union, this perfect union. And so what I want you to see is that Jesus died of spiritual thirst for us so that we could drink from the living water, so that we could experience this spring of water welling up to eternal life. We didn't, we didn't deserve it. It's a gift. Right? We deserve the death on the cross. He took our place on the cross. He took our thirst on the cross. And we're going to remember that here in just a minute as we take communion. But look, here's, here's the final takeaway I want us to leave with this morning. Jesus was not surprised by this woman's sin. Right? He didn't say, 
oh, really? Five husbands? Whew, that, that's a lot even by Samaritan standards. Ugh, I, I changed my mind on this. He doesn't say that. He's not surprised by her sin. And he doesn't say, I can give you living water, but first you've got to promise me that you're never going to do this again. He doesn't do that either. No, he knew very well what she had done with her life and how she had lived. And when he sees her, when he sees you, the first thing he, he sees is not a sinner. He sees a daughter of the king who needs to be brought home. And that's what he does tenderly yet pointedly. He brings her back home. You see, Jesus has no interest in condemning us in our sin. I've thought about these words carefully. Listen carefully. This is not heresy. Jesus has no interest in condemning us in our sin. There's no point. He's already paid for our sin on the cross. He's already faced condemnation. There's no use in passing that condemnation back onto us. But he does want to convict us in our sin. He wants to use our sin to let us see how we've been digging broken cisterns instead of chasing after him, the one thing that can give us true life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for John 4. Thank you for these stories that have have been written down for us to teach us, to encourage us, to show us our dependence on you. God, I pray for all of us here, believers, unbelievers, God, we dig our own cisterns, we chase after things to quench our thirst outside of you. I do it in my own life. God, I pray that you would convict us in our sin, send your Holy Spirit to convict us. God, show us your living water. God, I pray for those that are here that may not know you, God, I pray that they would see you as this woman at the well saw you as the Messiah, God, that they would believe in you and that they would have life in you. God, as we come to this table today, the communion table, we remember and we celebrate what you've done on the cross for us. We remember and celebrate your victory over death, victory over sin, and we remember that we were the ones that should have faced condemnation for our sin. We should have been the ones to face judgment. God, but now you've, you've provided a way out through your blood, through your body. We remember and celebrate that today. Amen.